0: This episode is brought to you by Merrick Pet Care. We have a dog. Her name is Sasha. She's almost four. She's a standard poodle. She's got curly, fluffy, soft, black hair, and she's very adorable, and she's a part of our family, and we care a lot about taking good care of her. And that includes feeding her high-quality dog food like Merrick's. Founded in Hereford, Texas, Merrick has been crafting high-quality dog food for over 30 years. Real is Merrick's recipe. They always use deboned meat, fish, or poultry as the number one ingredient. Merrick creates home-style recipes like real Texas beef and sweet potato or Grammy's pot pie, so you can feel good about what you're feeding your pet. I mean, you know, you come home from being out, and your dog is there to greet you, and, like, that's one of the best things about having a pet, you know? You come home, the dog's happy to see you, and they're hungry. And you want to reciprocate that good feeling they give you when you walk in the door, you want to give to them in the form of some high-quality food. So check out Merrick online or in your local pet store and look for their new packaging with real ingredients shown on the bag and inside it. This episode contains explicit language. This is The Sporkful. It's not for foodies, it's for eaters. I'm Dan Pashman. Each week on our show, we obsess about food to learn more about people, and Happy New Year. I hope you had a great holiday season and New Year celebration. I hope you're getting back into the swing of things, which is exactly what we're going to do. Right now, we're going to start off this year with a look back at the major role that food played in TV and movies last year. Now, of course, food on TV is not new, but I do think last year was different. In addition to the usual cooking competition shows...
1: All right, let's find out. (laughs) Is it K?
0: And food travel shows. There's nowhere on earth quite like Italy. Food was also used to offer biting commentary on class and race, as well as on the toxic culture in many restaurant kitchens and dining rooms.
2: It was a play on a panettone. It would have been beautiful if you'd let me finish the play. Fuck you, Ah, cousin. Richie Jaramovich. Pleasure to meet you, sweetheart. Don't say sweetheart, you oh, fucking sorry, weirdo. Oh, sorry, Carm. You're so woke. I made mean, nothing by it, Sydney. Saying sweetheart's just part of our Italian heritage. That's beautiful. Thank you.
0: Bottom line: food and movies and TV has given us a lot to unpack. So that's what we're gonna do in this episode. Later on, we'll be joined by a very special guest, a chef who consulted on the film The Menu and taught Ray Fines how to cook on camera. But first, I want to bring in an expert. Joining me today is Ashley Ray, the host of the podcast TV I Say with Ashley Ray. She knows TV inside and out. She's a comedian and writer who's written for a number of TV shows, including Adult Swim's Alabama Jackson... She also writes about TV and culture for the AV Club and New York Magazine. And each week on TV, I say, she runs down what she and her guests are watching. Hey, Ashley. Hi, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for being here. Now, quick warning off the top. We're going to be talking about a lot of shows and movies in this episode. There's going to be spoilers. People just deal with it. Yeah. And now, before we get into specific shows, I would love to just ask you, like, as someone who is a perceptive TV and movie watcher and also someone who has worked on the creative side behind the scenes, like... When you see food being used in the
1: plot of a story, what are the hallmarks of it being done well? What are some of the pitfalls? I think when it is really tied to generational or cultural historical analysis, it can be really, really good. That's what you got with Atlanta. Reservation Dogs, which was great this year. They have a lot of plots about these younger generations learning recipes and different methods of cooking from their parents and ancestors. Uh, And then, you know, I think a show... Like, the bear kind of didn't embrace that aspect of it. They didn't embrace the cultural aspect of Chicago food. All right, now before we get farther into the bear, for folks who haven't seen it, I just want to set it up a little bit here. The
0: bear follows Carmi. He's a pretty famous chef who's returned home to Chicago after many years working in super fancy restaurants in New York. He's going to take over his family's rundown Italian beef restaurant after the death of his brother, who used to run the place. Carmi, who's played by Jeremy Allen White, is determined to retool the beef, as they call the restaurant, so it functions like the high-end kitchens he was trained in.
1: Ibra,
2: make sandwiches. Don't stop making fucking sandwiches. Yes, sir. I'm going to make
0: three sections, okay? They're going to be wet, hot, and sweet, all right? I'm going to take green tape, make those sections. Louie, yes, I want sir. you to get the sandwiches, put them I'm in the sure. corresponding sections. Poppy? Okay, yeah, yeah. The bear did come up a lot on your podcast but not always in a positive way you had some frustrations
1: with it tell me about that I did you know I, I think every guest I had this year listed the bear as one of their favorites of the year I'm watching the bear that is my show I, like that's gonna be my favorite show of the At this point,
2: year I'm only watching it because everybody loves it and that's the FX series the bear about the guy who works in the, the restaurant
1: I'm I don't believe in chef culture. You know, I'm not, it's not, I'm not straight, I guess is what I'm saying. And yet, I can't stop watching The Bear. I love the performances, love the story it tells about, you know, addiction and family and grief, but what it does get wrong, and what it bothers me on is the Chicago food depictions.
0: We should say you grew up in Rockford, Illinois. Yes. You lived in Chicago for a number of years, so you know Chicago well.
1: I know Chicago food. I know Chicago. I grew up on, you know, Italian beef and ribs and barbecue and chicken from Chicago. Uh, I actually worked at an office that was like a block away from the Mr. Beef that the show is based on, Mr. Beef on Orleans, And I've been there. When you're talking about food in River North Chicago, River North is one of the richest, most gentrified neighborhoods, which you would not get that feeling from the show. right? The show tries to make it seem like this is a down-and-out, dirty neighborhood. But really, it's, like, where all the advertising companies are and, like, five-star Michelin restaurants. Mostly, if you are not a rich person and you want to eat in that area, all you have are, like, the Italian beef shops. So, like... It's interesting to me that in the show, the whole point is that they want to gentrify this place that is the only affordable eating establishment and turn it into a fancy high end eatery. When most Chicagoans would be like, that is not what River North needs. <laughs> As someone from Illinois, I felt like I had to call these things out. I mean, first of all, the menu at the restaurant in the Bear makes little to no sense. Like, as a Chicago, you're like, okay, so they sell Italian beef, but then they also sell like pasta, and it's a sit down restaurant. Right. But it seems to be a place where apparently they make their own bread and chocolate cake, which is not a thing in Chicago. Like, it's just small stuff. Like, in Chicago, we don't have health grades for restaurants. Like, there's no ABC. That's like a New York thing. So it just was these little disconnects where you're like, this is a New Yorker. A New Yorker did this. Everything you're saying about the
0: incongruity and the sort of unrealistic depiction of Chicago is fair. But putting that aside, one of the things that I thought was interesting about this show was that I felt like it was a more nuanced portrayal of the sometimes abusive conditions that can take place in restaurants. Yes. I think that the easy, heavy-handed approach would have just been like, there's a big, bad male chef who's horrible all the time to his subordinates yeah and instead the lead white male chef is a somewhat sympathetic character I think who seems like he's trying to create a kitchen that's different from the one that he came up in and there's a flashback where he the chef who trained him is is like a super villain
1: yeah why are you so slow why are you so fucking slow why? You think you're so tough?
0: Yeah, why don't you say this? Say yes, chef, I'm so tough. Yes, chef, I'm so tough. Say fucking
2: yes, chef, I'm so tough. Yes, chef, I'm so tough. You are not tough. You are bullshit. You are talentless.
3: Say fucking hands. Hands. You should be dead.
1: And so he seems like he's trying. On the other hand, he's not always succeeding. Right. It seems to him that the only way you can teach is with that same sort of just hard-handed attitude of disrespect. There's a whole thing with a cake
0: I'm jumping in here real quick For all you super fans of the bear Ashley and I both remembered this as chocolate cake When we were discussing it But it's actually a donut in this scene The chocolate cake is a different part So when we say cake, think donut
1: One of the most devastating moments is when Jeremy Allen White basically like slaps this cake on the ground. You want to cry for the guy whose whole story for most of the season is just trying to get this cake right. And he finally thinks he gets it. And instead of being celebrated, he's torn down in that way that chefs do to make you just feel like nothing is ever good. Like you can be better and better. Shut
3: the fuck up!
2: Yo, Carmen, I did it figured out what I was doing wrong. You know, I was trying to make a cake donut when it should have been yeast all along. And I've Marcus, why are you fucking with me? 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 Huh?
0: Get the fuck back to work! Move! Holy shit. Everybody! Fucking idiots! Yo, cousin, just fucking... Shut the fuck up!
1: Uh, and I worked in a few restaurants, mostly, like, at fast food places. I worked at a smoothie shop. And... I feel like that is what the show nails is the just intensity and stress of working in a kitchen, not wanting to let your chef down. I would be like, I can't let my manager down on these like pre-packaged salads we get from corporate. (laughs) But it's just the it's like that intensity and environment that. It has to feel like the end of the world. And for the character, Carmi, this is his family shop. He has a name to keep alive and a reputation to maintain. But at the same time, he knows he's capable of more. Right. That whole moment with the cake. I mean, to me, I honestly, I I had kind of mixed feelings. I agree
0: that like his reaction was extreme and hurtful to the chef who'd been working so hard on the cake. On the other hand, like this Cake was like the chef's hobby. Yeah. He gets inspired by Carmi and starts trying to up his game. And he's working on these donuts and all this, but it's kind of supposed to be in his spare time. And Carmi says, look, you can do this in your spare time, but you still need to do your job. And he says, yes, yes, of course. Then he fucks
1: up. Yeah. And the restaurant gets screwed up because he was focused on his— On the cake. He doesn't have the bread. Yeah. And it's also like a day when they're slammed with all these delivery orders and everyone is trying to like keep up with all these Italian beef orders. And he's like, hey, anybody want to try my chocolate cake? And it's like, no, shut up. Like we are busy with something else here. <laughs> right. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. My frustrations with the bear were, first of all, like too many scenes of Carmi, like staring plaintively out at Lake Michigan while Plinky music played. Oh, yeah. My wife, Chaney, was like, this show thinks it's artsier than it is.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Because that is how I feel about it, is that the show truly does—it is an amazing show. It tells an amazing story about working with people you might not like and accepting new people and working through grief and, you know, coming back to your family— But at the same time, I'm like, when the show's at its best, it's when it's like kids are getting drugged from Xanax juice on accident. (laughs) Right. The show itself should have understood that it
0: was an Italian beef restaurant of shows. Yeah. And be great at that. And be funny. Don't try to be a James Beard Award-winning (laughs) five-star
1: equivalent of a TV show. Equivalent of a show. Yeah. This was probably the closest any show's come to really... Giving Chicago food and culture the respect it deserves, which is why at the end of the day, I still love the show. Think it's great. That part of the story is done very well. Right. Right.
0: All right. Next thing I want to cover, Ashley, is Julia. Oh, yes. Now, we had the hit film, Julie and Julia, from years ago. 2021, there was a documentary called Julia. And yet, still, 2022 brought us more Julia Child. Food Network had a cooking competition show called the Julia Child Challenge, where home cooks take on Julia-inspired tests, and HBO had their miniseries, Julia. Yes.
3: That was perhaps the most exquisite meal I've had on this side of the Atlantic, as grand as any meal I've had in Paris. Bravo, chef. I'm Julia Child. But of course I know who you are.
1: Oh, you do? You are the
3: French chef.
1: (laughs) well.
0: So first off, what do you think is the television and film fascination
1: with Julia Child? I she's just an incredibly interesting figure. And I feel like almost every year there's a new generation of people who realize just how cool she was, that she was, like, in the original CIA, that she was so much more than a cook. And a lot of what the HBO show goes into is not just, like, her cooking, but how she revolutionized how cooking was filmed for television. That she is the one who is, like, why we have the Food Network. You know, when she's stirring something in a bowl, the camera can get into the bowl. I thought that was the most fascinating part is how this— Woman who just had, like, a Boston public TV show ends up revolutionizing, like, cameras, recording, directing. There is one aspect of that show that
0: I wanted to raise. I was curious what your take is. I had read a piece in response to it written by a food writer named John Birdzall, who we've had on this show, um, and has written a lot about queer voices and representation in food. And he was very frustrated with the depiction in particular in one episode where Julia goes to a gay bar in San Francisco and goes up on stage and sings with a drag queen. Who
1: am I kidding? I, I can't do, do this, this alone. alone. Julia, and get, get out, out of here! here!
0: <laughs> and has this moment where the drag queen gives Julia fashion and makeup tips that kind of becomes a sort of somewhat pivotal moment in how she presents herself in her career. Yeah.
1: I had to be you.
3: A size 12
0: and a half shoot. John Birdsall called this pinkwashing a quote cruel revision of the truth he says Julia Child was openly homophobic and cites letters she wrote that used various derogatory terms for queer people including one where she called a cooking school a quote
1: nest of homo vipers <laughs> dang julia <laughs> Uh, I mean, I knew that she was not as, you know, pro-LGBTQ as the show wants you to believe. I knew all of that was made up. Like, I was like, there's no way she was, like, partying with drag queens and this wasn't in a history book somewhere. Right. But it would have been better if they were honest about that aspect of it. But I think the show wanted to position her as this sort of underdog outsider. Like, there's a later episode, she goes to, like, an award reception and Betty Friedan, uh, the feminist author, like, attacks her and is like, you're setting women back. And it's kind of true. Like, you could criticize Julia Child for, you know, inspiring women to, like, stay in the kitchen. But in the show, it's like, Anyone who comes against Julia is bad. I think they wanted to address how even as a woman who had excelled in the skill that is supposed to be for women, she was still seen as not as good as male chefs.
3: But uh, may I ask you a small favor, mon manly? I of course, anything.
1: Let's leave the real cooking to the men, or I'll be out of a job, eh? La cuisine française is no place for a woman. So I think that was their shorthand way of bringing up her sort of gender and identity issues. But it was sloppy. One more show we got to cover, Ashley, was the
0: Atlanta series finale. Oh, yeah. Which I thought was an absolute masterpiece. And food plays a pretty central role in a key scene in this final episode. And I want to play a clip from it, but I got to set it up a little. Okay. so. Three of the main characters, you have Ern, played by Donald Glover, who's also the show's creator and wrote this episode. There's Alfred, played by Brian Tyree Henry, and Van, played by Zassi Beats. So Ern, Al, and Van go out to eat at what is billed as Atlanta's first black-owned sushi restaurant, and they want to support it. The food's pretty high-end. It's pretty out-there sushi to them. They go in kind of skeptical of raw fish at all. And Alfred's unhappy that he has to be there. He doesn't like that the sushi chef is touching the fish with his bare hands. And he spends the whole time staring out the window at the Popeyes across the street, wishing he could be eating there instead. Then the waiter brings out the chef's special blowfish, a poisonous fish, which has to be cut in just the right way to not kill you. <laughs> and at this point, the chef owner of the restaurant, who we haven't seen yet, appears. And he studied under a sushi master in Japan, and he's dressed in a suit with a white shirt and bow tie, which to me at least was evocative of, like, Nation of Islam. Yes, yes. <laughs> and he begins talking to Alfred.
3: There's a movie theater two blocks away from here. The night Queen and Slim premiered, we were filled, line out the door. Black people hopped up on nationalism, coming to support their own. Fifteen minutes later, we were empty. Not one person ate the blowfish. Just a bunch of Yelp reviews that all said the same thing. This nigga serving poison fish Hey, listen, man. You know, the traditional way to make sushi is with your bare hands. Every Japanese sushi restaurant worth its soy sauce, does it that way. But I guess my master was never a from Florida. Listen, brother, man. Don't give me that brother shit. This entire dinner, you have been staring across the street at a modern-day coon chicken served to you by an Aunt Jemima who lies to you repeatedly, telling you it is her recipe and that she is benefiting from it. It is not her recipe. You know who owns that recipe? An Italian man and his family. None of which have married black. I heard some of them even moved from New Orleans to New Jersey. I'm a... <laughs> I, man, I... I get it. Oh, you get it. Yeah, yeah, I, I get it. You get it now. I get it now, man. They eat it. What? Eat it. Eat my poison fish, brother.
0: What'd you make of that scene?
1: Uh, one of the best scenes in television. First of all, it is so difficult for shows like Atlanta to end on a great note. We all knew this was the final season. We knew this was the final episode. This moment is sort of, to me, like the thesis of everything Atlanta stands for, (laughs) of just this self-doubt in... Ourselves as the Black community, our inability to trust and support ourselves, but our st- just like this still desire we have to have what we want that is fun and enjoyable, like Popeyes. <laughs> Which, not spoiling the episode, but the Popeyes plays a big part in in the end. <laughs> right, like someone comes in, saves them from the poison fish, and brings in all these bags of Popeyes chicken sandwiches and you know, it's not seen as sort of this failure on their part as Black people that they went with the Popeyes. It's a celebration of them as Black people doing what they want. At the end of the day, that's kind of the greatest freedom that these people can have, these characters, you know, when they're not stuck in sort of the entertainment complex of this is how you should be acting, you know, as as a rapper or a black man in Atlanta. This is just them truly at last doing what they want, even if it is something that is such a huge stereotype and not caring. And I think at some points in the episode, uh, Al, like, really points out how performative it is, you know, that they're supporting this Black restaurant, that's the first sushi place, but it's not like they're supporting Black cultural food. It is this person who's combining Black stereotypes with sushi, I feel like there was something like a fried fish sushi or something made in, like, grape soda, and they're just like, come on, you cannot. <laughs> and Ern and Paperboy correctly point out, like, this is ridiculous. You know, not all your folk are your kinfolk. You know, like, just because this is the first black-owned restaurant in Atlanta doesn't mean it's not trying to hurt you. Like, they are serving you warm Hennessy. <laughs> this doesn't need to be for us. You know, especially when you, they look at one point across the street and there's, like, all these kids outside of the Popeyes dancing and shooting TikToks and their biggest fears that like school's gonna let out and the Popeyes will be too busy. And it's like, yeah, because that's the actual place of community. And yes, it sucks that it's corporate, but at the end of the day, that's what the people want. And it's just such a perfect test of what the show wants to dig into and also what the show has been criticized for. You know, there are those who feel that it is a depiction of Black people that isn't supportive of Black people? Or as a whole, is it really good for our community? A lot of people behind the scenes, even though the writers, the actors are all Black people, uh, you know, it is still tied to the FX machine of, like, you know, white Hollywood and white producers. You know, the same network that created The Bear is behind Atlanta, and The Bear is probably the whitest depiction of Chicago I've ever seen. And the only reason it's able to, as a show, like, do its own thing is because Donald Glover works so hard and won so many awards that he reached a level where he could be like, I don't need to listen to these white studio people. I can do what I want. I, you know, have the freedom to celebrate what I want on my show. I don't know, at the end of the day, to me, that's what going to Popeye's is all about. (laughs) Coming up, we're going to turn our attention
0: to the film The Menu, which is a dark comedy starring Ray Fiennes and Anya Taylor Joy. I love this movie. I'm going to ask you, Ashley, what you thought. And we're going to talk with a chef who consulted on the film. Sound good? Yes. All right, stick around.
1: Time to cook up some advertisements.
0: In the Pashman household, we're already big fans of Tillamook shredded cheese. In fact, I used it in developing many recipes in my cookbook. And now I'm getting into their ice cream. Tillamook ice cream is made with more cream, so you get smooth and dreamy scoops each time. You may not realize it, but this is why a lot of the store-bought ice cream doesn't taste the same as what you get in, in an ice cream parlor. But with Tillamook, they don't skimp on the cream. These people know dairy, okay? Tillamook makes a great, rich vanilla ice cream with real crushed vanilla bean seeds. They have an Oregon strawberry, sweet strawberry ice cream with ripe Oregon strawberry pieces. The one that I really love is the mudslide flavor, smooth chocolate ice cream with a ribbon of rich fudge and chocolatey chips. You want to move the spoon around to get fudgy and chocolatey chips and the ice cream all in the same bite each time, and it's just so, so nice. And like I said, I just trust Tillamook when it comes to dairy. They make over 200 different dairy products, and the brand is farmer-owned and led by dairy experts. Find Tillamook ice cream near you at tillamook.com. That's T-I-L-L-A-M-O-O-K dot com. I enjoy a nice glass of wine, but I don't pretend to be an expert in wine. I usually just want a wine that's high quality, delicious, and not too expensive. And to me, that's Bogle Family Vineyards. And here's the thing about Bogle. This is a third-generation family-owned winery from California that makes exceptional wines for about 10 bucks a bottle. Bogle wines consistently earn best buy designations and high ratings from wine enthusiasts. And let me tell you something. The folks at Wine Enthusiast, they drink a lot of wine. They drink a lot of fancy, expensive wine. And yet they still keep giving great ratings to Bogle. And Bogle Vineyard has so many different kinds of wine. Whatever your mood, whatever you're eating, there's a wine for you. They got this great Pinot Grigio that's crisp and fruity, goes well with spicy foods, with fish. They have a classic Chardonnay that's balanced, amazing, with a pork tenderloin or butter chicken. I like to take that Chardonnay and do what Jacques Pepin taught me, a couple of ice cubes in your glass of Bogle. If Jacques Pepin says it's okay, then it's okay. And there's the Bogle Pinot Noir, refined and elegant with bright fruit and about as food-friendly as a red wine can be. You're not going to believe it's only $10. Neither will your friends if you tell them. So pick up a few bottles of Bogle wherever you buy your favorite wines. Please drink responsibly. Are you ready for warmer weather? I know I am. But is your wardrobe ready? I just stocked up on spring and summer clothing at Quince. And let me tell you something. I feel great about everything I got. I got a couple of short sleeve button down shirts, polo shirt, some shorts. Everything feels great. It's super high quality. And I can't believe how much stuff I got at a reasonable price. Quince has all the seasonal must-haves like 100% European linen shirts from $30, performance polos, and versatile flow-knit activewear. The best part? All Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing practices, along with premium fabrics and finishes. Whatever you need for the spring and summer, Quince has your back. Upgrade your wardrobe. Go to quince.com slash sporkful for free shipping on your order and 365-day returns. That's quince.com slash sporkful to get free shipping and 365-day returns. quince.com slash sporkful. I just got a very wonderful shipment of goodies from the folks at Reese's. And let me tell you something. These people remain the absolute worldwide leaders in bringing together chocolate and peanut butter. Of course, we know the peanut butter cups remain transcendent. But have you tried the Reese's sticks? They're wafers with peanut butter in between each wafer, all coated in chocolate. I mean, the combination of sweet chocolate and salty peanut butter just brings people joy, and the folks at Reese's do it better than anyone. So shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you, found wherever candy is sold. Welcome back to The Sporkful, I'm Dan Pashman, and welcome back TV writer, comedian, and host of the podcast TV I Say, Ashley Ray. Hey, Ashley. Hey. So we're going to turn our attention out to a movie called The Menu, which came out last fall. If you haven't seen The Menu, here's what you need to know. So Ray Fines plays Julian Slowick. Julian is the imperious chef behind Hawthorne, which hosts only a dozen guests a night for a prefix menu that tops $1,000 a person. And the guests who are assembling on the night the movie takes place stand in for every annoying archetype in the foodie ecosystem. There's a self-important restaurant critic, some finance bros, a celebrity actor past his prime, an older couple who keep coming to the restaurant even though they barely notice what they're eating <laughs> and then there's Margot played by Anya Taylor-Joy who's an outsider in this world she's a last minute addition of the guest list who's completely unaware that Julian has planned for this meal to be everyone's last over the next few hours you will ingest fat salt sugar protein bacteria fungi various plants and animals and at times entire ecosystems but I have to beg of you one thing. It's just one. Do not eat. It's easier. Taste. Savor. Relish. Consider every morsel that you place inside your mouth. Be mindful,
1: but do not eat. Our menu is too precious for that. I love the movie as someone who hates rich people uh, and is happy to see them suffer. Love anything where rich people are getting their comeuppance. And I love anything that makes fun of this foodie culture and... There's like a part with the breadless bread basket thing where it's just like sauces on a plate. (laughs) And I just love when movies and shows make fun of those kind of concepts. So I was in right away. Uh, And then I love how it just gets creepier and creepier as it goes on. You're like, you guys should run. (laughs) Why aren't they running? And it's because they're just like, well, this is the proper thing you do. They can't believe that something bad would happen to them. Yeah. <laughs> like, I paid 1200 something dollars to be here. How could anything bad happen to me? Right.
0: The movie starts with Anya Taylor-Joy and Nicholas Holt. He's bringing her to the restaurant, and he's obsessed with the chef and the backstory and the menu. And he's like, oh, my God, this chef uses this specific machine and this technique and blah, 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 and she couldn't care less. <laughs>
3: Babe, please don't smoke. It'll kill your palate. And my palate will die happy. Margot. Tonight is huge, okay? The flavor profiles, it's all super delicate. When you smoke, you ruin your ability to be able
1: to appreciate it. <laughs> that.
0: that depiction of that foodie archetype pulled me into this movie immediately. Yeah. I have to admit, it hit home a little bit for me. I don't care about going to fancy restaurants. Like, I've never been to a restaurant that costs anywhere close to $1,000 a person. (laughs) But I know that there are some times that I'm with certain people, and I'm really excited about some food thing. This chef came from there, and they're using this ingredient, and they did this special research, and that's why the tacos are so amazing. And I'm really excited to tell someone, and yet the people I'm talking to just don't really care about all those details.
1: I like that it kind of played, at least with Anya Taylor-Joy's character, like someone who just isn't impressed by it. But at the same time, I think with these rich people who are supposed to be impressed by it, they're not. It's more about the status and the fact that they can do it versus actually appreciating the food, which I think is what food culture is about now, right? It's like, oh, what? Is expensive? What can you take a picture of? What looks good on Instagram? You know, what's the weird TikTok thing that everyone's like, oh, I stood in line for an hour to get this. And so I love that it makes fun of that. Right. (laughs) Most of us cannot relate to being billionaires who are going to go eat a like $1,200 meal that someone who's like worked at a restaurant where you're just like, we're all in this together. We can't mess this up. Like, we have to create this perfect vision and give the people eating what they need and make it perfect. You're like, oh, yeah, I totally have worked with a person who's like, yes, boss, if that's what you want me to do, I'm jumping in the blender. Let's go. (laughs) It's just a clever, funny movie. You know, I didn't really think it was that scary. You know, even sort of the final big ending, (laughs) the fact that, yeah, sure, it's a scary fire. But then it's like he turns all these rich people into s'mores. (laughs) That's just funny. (laughs)
0: so I want to bring in John Ben-Hayes he's a chef in Savannah, Georgia near Tybee Island which is the setting for the fictional restaurant Hawthorne in the menu this is where it was filmed and John you consulted on the film helping to make the kitchen scenes as realistic as possible welcome John thank you
2: thank you for having
0: me I'm Dan this is Ashley hey first of all we should tell people that like most of the action takes place in this restaurant, which has an open kitchen. So, even in the scenes where you're watching the diners or where the chef is standing at the front addressing the diners, there's an open, active working kitchen in the background of a lot of the shots. And there was obviously a lot of concern among the filmmakers to make that kitchen and everything happening there look as realistic as possible to the kind of restaurant that might be serving $1,200 a person dinners. So, what were some of the things that you were teaching? those actors, so that they could look as realistic as possible.
2: Even when the camera is facing away from the kitchen, there's still a reflection in the glass of what's happening in the kitchen. So I think from a filming standpoint, that's kind of unheard of to just have this moving scenery at all times be such an important part of what's going on. You know, obviously, Chef Dominique and her team doing what... The food
0: is Dominique Crenn, who's a famous chef, supervised a lot of the creation of the dishes and the plating and all that that was in in the film as well.
2: Yeah, her team kind of came up with these dishes, and then it was up to us to make sure that the people making them looked like they knew what the hell they were doing. So having them moving in the background, you know, every scene they're cooking the next dish, and we've got real food on the fire, real food in the pans, making sure that kind of. The menu and all of those courses actually make sense consecutively, which is pretty cool.
0: This is not normal in movies that take place in restaurants. They're not usually cooking real food that might actually be edible.
1: I mean, in my experience, it's usually like, do not touch the fake food. It's covered in poison so that we don't have to, you know, remake a sandwich when it starts to get moldy because we're shooting the same shot all day. I mean, not only were you cooking real food, you were cooking it with the goal of it being delicious so that the
0: actors were actually eating these actual dishes.
2: Yeah, 100%. I think that was one of the main stipulations that Chef Dominique had. She was like, I'll do this, but the food has to taste good, or it's not my food.
0: Wow. So you're cooking real food and then serving it to these actors. So from your perspective as a chef, what was the biggest challenge of that?
2: Even the most real food is still not real food when it's on a movie. I mean, the cosmetic choices you have to make in order for it to be really beautiful— But I think in some regards that translates to a restaurant like this where they're sacrificing taste and how wonderful the food is for what it looks like anyway.
1: For some of the dishes in the movie, they're so ridiculous. (laughs) Like, were there real-life examples or or menus or restaurants you looked at that you were kind of like, this is a ridiculous thing that we should make fun of?
2: (laughs) I think they drew very much from kind of the personality of who Sloak was going to be. So it was very focused on creating this like cold kind of soulless food that was still really impressive and still made you think that, oh, somebody might actually pay that much money for this.
0: Now, the film's pivotal cheeseburger, I understand it was based on an actual burger that you once made at a restaurant in Atlanta.
1: Oh, I was going to ask about the burger.
2: (laughs) I worked at this restaurant called the General Mirror in Atlanta and learned how to make this just kind of perfect smash burger. And it was such a collaborative, cool set to be on that all this focus was on all these dishes that are such a big part of the story. I was sitting in kind of Video Village talking to the writers. They were like, oh, I guess we don't have like what we want the burger to look like yet. And I was like, we're filming right now. (laughs) So I was like, I can do a really cool burger. (laughs) This This is exactly what you want. Like after reading the script, I was like, you want this kind of super traditional, like bordering on slutty burger, right? <laughs> that is just going to like check all the nostalgic boxes that you want. And it was a nice way for me to insert myself into the the food in the film as well. And I got to spend a whole day just making that burger over and over again with Rafe. He was like, we don't have burgers like this in London.
0: Tell me about that process, teaching Rafe how to make the burger.
2: Yeah, there's a, there's a lot of pressure making a cheeseburger on an electric flat top in the middle of a, a warehouse with Ray Fines and Dominique Crin watching you. <laughs> you know, I, I made it multiple times, kind of step by step. This is my movements, and then did it with him a few times, and then he got it very quickly. But it's a nuanced process. The big part is when you're really pressing the burger, you have to get it really hot and greased up before you press or else all that meat's going to stick to it and then you're not getting that beautiful like fried egg kind of crispy around the outside cooking the onions underneath the burger on the non-crispy side so they cook in all that beef fat those little things putting it all together and then seeing it in its moment I was like that that's a It's a sexy burger.
1: (laughs) I just learned a lot about burger making from that. i like, what? Ashley's jaw was like on the floor for that
0: entire description.
1: I was like, oh my, that's such an obvious way to not have the meat stick to the thing. Duh. Do you think it had to be a burger? Like, do you think there was a reason they really wanted it to be a burger for that moment and not like, you know, he used to work at a hot dog
2: place? I think maybe... The, the kind of craft behind making that burger still allows that nostalgia for the chef, at process and it being kind of this labor of love and you're sitting there over the hot flat top just, you know, steaming yourself with all the juices and everything.
0: It also gives you an excuse to use American cheese, which to me, like, is the superior cheese for burgers. Absolutely. And it's the thing that, like, fancy people look down upon American cheese. Yes.
2: American cheese is this absurd commodity product that won't split. It won't break. And it gives you those crispy edges. Like, you know, you really scrape it off that that flat top and you get that like spider web of crispy cheese that you really can't get with other cheeses. And then putting a, a sauce on there that's just mayo, mustard, and ketchup mixed together and sesame bun. It's just, it's pretty perfect.
0: So John, in the menu and also in the TV show, The Bear, there's a lot of depiction of sort of kitchen dynamics. And there's the idea that that there must be this sort of undying obedience to the chef. And there's a lot of desire among the underlings to please and impress the chef. How realistic is that in your experience?
2: Unfortunately, too realistic. I think the way this is being shown right in, in TV and film is kind of part of that death rattle, hopefully, in a high-stress environment like a kitchen. There is efficiency behind not questioning every single thing that's happening in order to just, like, get things done and trust a process. And so I think it was kind of glorified throughout time where these kind of tortured artists became a sexy thing instead of a toxic thing. And you can see that in relation to, like, how people have responded to the bear and yeah. the thirst around him. Yeah. Yes, Chef. <laughs> <laughs> There's kind of that draw to somebody that's so committed and so passionately obsessive about something that, that is hard to deny, whether they use it for good or for evil is a whole other thing.
1: Yeah.
0: Well, it's interesting, John. You talk about that sort of drive. The chef character in the menu, the Ray Fiennes character, has driven himself to the point of madness with his pursuit of culinary perfection. And he has come to feel that the people he's working so hard to please don't appreciate his efforts. Right. They're unpleasable. They're coming to his restaurant for the wrong reasons, mostly because it's a marker of status. John, your restaurants are in the Savannah area. I haven't been to any of them, but I checked them out online and they look Fantastic. None of them are a $1,000-a-plate restaurants, but they look like really nice restaurants. That area is known as a place with a lot of great food. So I'm sure you get sort of like foodie tourism. Like there are people who come into town from other parts of the country, and partly they're there because they want to put it on Instagram. I wonder if that's something you see and how you
2: feel about that. I think, you know, in a restaurant like The Menu... You can't make food like that and not expect people to Instagram it. Uh, I'd be pretty bummed if if I spent $1,200 on a meal and I couldn't take a picture of it. (laughs) The number one goal I have for any place is to try and immerse people into an experience and make them forget about those aspects of it. But it's kind of a chicken or the egg thing. The kind of love is leaving the food, and it's because the people don't really care about the love within the food.
0: John Benhay is consulted on the menu. He's the chef owner of Starlin Yard in Savannah. Thank you so much, John.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Great to meet y'all.
0: And you can find Ashley Ray's podcast TV, I Say with Ashley Ray, wherever you listen. And you can catch her stand-up comedy regularly in LA and beyond. Dates are available at theashleyray.com. Thanks, Ashley.
1: Thank you. This was so fun.
0: Next week on the show, I talk with Reina, a young woman struggling with disordered eating. We heard from her a year ago. We're going to check in with her this year to see how she's doing. That's next week. While you're waiting for that one, scroll back through our feed from the fall. You probably missed a good episode somewhere along the line, so check them out. This show is produced by me along with senior producer Emma
1: Morgenstern
0: and producers Andres O'Hara and
1: Rachel M. Ward.
0: The show is edited by John Delore and
1: Abigail Keel.
0: The show is mixed by Jared O'Connell, music help from Black Label Music. The Sporkful is a production of Stitcher. Our executive producers are Colin Anderson and Nora Ritchie. Thank you to Eric Eddings for all your great work on The Sporkful as he departs Stitcher. And welcome to Nora Ritchie. It's great to have you. Until next time, I'm Dan Pashman.
1: This is John Zia Hutchings from Macon, Georgia, reminding you to eat more
0: This November, I'm going back to Italy, leading a food tour there, and I want to brush up on my Italian. And for that, I'm turning to Rosetta Stone. It's the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. And for a very limited time, Sporkful listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com sporkful. That's half off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com sporkful today.